Mark chapter 8. Let me read this passage. This is a passage about really the meaning of Easter. And, and I, thought of, I thought of this, actually I preached this text there and I want to preach it to you as well. And it's, it's a good text because I think if there's anyone here this morning who's maybe new to Christianity or, or to the church or maybe you grew up with it but you just didn't get it and you kind of are back wondering what it's all about, this is a great text to help us just to understand um, the meaning of Easter and what it means for our lives today. And then for those of you who this is going to be like your 30th Easter, and you, you know, you've heard all the songs, you've sung all the songs, you sang Amazing Grace by heart with your eyes closed. For all, for all of you regulars and old-timers in the faith, this is a chance for us to look at Easter with fresh eyes, to come at it not as, as an old tradition, but as a living experience. And I think this text helps us to see that. So let me read Mark chapter 8, verses 22 to the end of the chapter. And in this text, we have a famous confession, we have a famous rebuke, and then a famous teaching. Mark chapter 8, verses 22 and following. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. And when he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, Don't go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, You're the Christ. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. "'Get behind me, Satan,' he said." You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then he called the crowd to him along with the disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. So a famous confession, a famous rebuke, and a famous teaching. But first, a strange miracle. A unique miracle. Jesus is in Bethsaida in verses 22 to 26, 
And there's this blind man there, and Jesus heals him. And it's unique, not because Jesus heals a blind man. Jesus heals many people in the Gospels. The Gospels are full of stories of Jesus healing people and touching people and raising people up. What's unique about this story is that it takes Jesus, apparently, two tries to heal him. So, so he, you see that? He pulls the guy aside. He, he spits on his eyes. He puts his hands on him, and he says, do you see anything? And, and what happens is the guy sees, but he doesn't see clearly. He, he doesn't perceive accurately. So there's some kind of healing that takes place. And, and the guy says, well, yeah, I see people, but he just doesn't understand what he's seeing. He, he says they look like trees walking. He's, he's confused. It's like the eyes are working, but the wiring of interpreting what the eyes are seeing is, is muddled. I, it's, it's unclear what it is, but he sees, but he doesn't see. And so Jesus touches him again, and then finally he sees everything clearly. And it raises the question, why did it take Jesus two tries to heal this guy? Uh, did he not use enough like power the first time? Did he not use enough spit? <laughs> did this man not have enough faith? Why, why wasn't this man healed? It's a strange miracle. It's the only one like it in all of the Gospels where it takes two tries. Well, who knows? There are some things in the Bible we just can't understand. Well, let's move on now to, <laughs> to the confession, the famous confession. Things that make more sense. The famous confession. So Jesus walks a little further, and he's, he asks the disciples, so, so who do the people say I am? What's, what's the word on the ground? What are the focus groups saying? What are the polls saying? Who do people think I am? And, and they say, well, it's different opinions. You know, Some think you know, they, they got you confused with John the Baptist. Uh, other people think you're Elijah. People think you're one of the prophets. And as I read those verses, I thought, you know, it's, uh, it, it's the same thing today, isn't it? You ask people today, who's Jesus? You get all kinds of answers. Some people would say, well, he, he's actually kind of a legend. He's a myth. He never really existed. But I mean, we could put that to bed. Even secular historians affirm that Jesus was a real person who made a significant impact in his time. Others might say Jesus was a, a teacher or a guru or a philosopher or something, or a rabbi who had unique teachings. Uh, others might say, no, no, he was more than just a teacher. He was a prophet. He, he brought a word from God. Others might even go further still and say, no, no, he was even more than a prophet. He was a, an incarnation of, of the divine, or he was a, an angel, or he was some kind of avatar among us. But Jesus says to them in verse 29, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And that's really what matters. Who do we think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is. You know, if you're here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, but you're here investigating or, or you're curious or you have questions, and as you try to figure out this whole Christian thing, you know, you have all these questions about Christianity. You know, I, I, I would put before you that, that this is the question you need to be asking. I mean, there's lots of questions like, you know, why in some churches do they have stained glass and why do they have clear glass in others? And and why, you know, why, 
why is the music like that? Or, you know, all these questions, and they're interesting questions. But if you really want to get to the heart of Christianity, if you really want to understand it, that the very core issue that, that defines Christianity, it's exactly that question. Who is Jesus? And I would just encourage you in, in your own investigation and searching that you would, you would just keep that question at the center of your focus and ask that. Because once you know that, you'll understand the whole thing. Who is Jesus? And so Peter answers. He says, you are the Christ. Now the Christ, that, that's a loaded term. It, it means anointed one. It comes from the Greek word for anointed one, which comes from the Hebrew word for anointed one, which is Messiah. And basically it means that Peter thought that Jesus was the anointed king that all of the Jewish people were waiting for, that he would come, that God was going to bring his kingdom into the world, that God's kingdom and God's salvation and God's blessings were going to come into the world and he was going to save his people and topple the Romans and rescue his people and bring it all through this king, this, uh, this kind of uh, uh, David, King David 2.0. This, this new anointed king who would come and bring all of God's salvation and blessings. And that's what they're waiting for. And so Peter says, that's you. You're the Christ. And so it's a famous confession because this is really who Jesus is. This is who the gospels portray him to be. And Peter finally gets it. And he says, ah, you're the Christ. And again, if you're here this morning and um, you're new to, to Christianity or you're trying to get your head around it, and this is key to understand is that the Christians gather and we worship together in communities because we believe that Jesus is the Christ, that he's the Son of God and the Savior. I mean, why are all these people here? Why, you know, all different backgrounds, some different nationalities here. There's different people from different walks of life, different ages, and yet we gather together on a Sunday morning when we could be just as well sleeping in, but, but here we are, we're gathered as a community, and we're singing these songs with gusto. And it's like, what, what's driving these people? Is it a common you know, view of politics? Is it a common socioeconomic background? And it's like, no. The thing that holds us together is that we believe that Jesus is the Christ. And not just believe it, but we've experienced something. We've experienced the power of Christ in our lives that's why, you know, you heard everyone singing Amazing Grace. Like, that was coming out of our guts. <laughs> like, we've experienced that, that we once were lost, and now we've been found through Christ. And that's, that is what defines us as a community. So we have this famous confession found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the different Gospels. But then it's interesting. It leads to a famous rebuke. Look at verse 31 says, he then began to teach them. Get that? He began, that's a key word, to teach them, that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. So now that we have this confession that Jesus is the Messiah, Jesus now begins a new teaching. He, he starts to tell them additional things he hasn't really laid out before. Jesus starts to introduce to the disciples a new curricula. And he's saying, look, you're right, I'm the Messiah. Now let me tell you what my mission is. 
So, so we have the Messiah and we have his mission. And, and he says, look, it's, it's this. I'm going to suffer. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. They're going to reject me. They're going to kill me. And I'm going to rise again. That's, that's what I'm coming to do. That's why I'm here. In fact, th- this is uh, really in some ways like a dividing line in the Gospel of Mark. Up to this point, the Gospel of Mark has really been leading up to this confession in verse 29. You're the Christ. So up to this point in Mark, if you want to think about the whole Gospel of Mark, the first half of the Gospel of Mark is Jesus wandering around all over Israel, and he's teaching, and he's doing miracles. And you wonder, who is this guy, and what is he doing? And in some ways, verse 29 is kind of like the punchline to the first half of the book. It's all leading up to this idea. Jesus is the Christ. But now from this point on, it's, and his mission is to suffer and die and then to rise. And so the rest of the book is not so much Jesus kind of wandering around randomly all over Israel, but it's more like Jesus walking to Jerusalem, getting ready to die. And so now he begins to teach his disciples, and he does it plainly. No, uh, no allegories, no parables, no vague sayings. He's just like, look, guys, I'm just going to love with you. Here's what's about to happen. And Peter doesn't like that. Look at verse 32. It's, it's mind-blowing. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. I mean, just two verses ago, Peter, <laughs> you're like, you're the king, you know. All hail the king, Jesus. And now he's pulling Jesus aside, going, you can't say that. Dude, what are you doing? You're going to freak people out. <laughs> is he the king or, you know, or, or is, he this, is he a kid that you're going to chide? It's amazing. Peter gets like an A-plus on who is Jesus. Then he gets like an F on what Jesus came to do. You know, he just, he's all over the map here. And Jesus returns the favor. He gives him a rebuke, and this is the famous rebuke. Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. I can't think of a stronger rebuke than to call somebody Satan. I mean, it doesn't, you know, it's about as bad as it gets. You're the devil. And and really, I, I think it shows here how deadly serious it is that we get the gospel right and that we understand the gospel You know, Jesus is loving and he's gracious, but man, when Peter starts blocking the gospel, the message that Jesus came to suffer and die and rise again and that through his death we can be forgiven, that basic gospel message, once once you mess with the gospel, Jesus gets, you know, intense. And he's like, now you're being, now Satan is using you. It's like Paul in the book of Galatians where Paul says, if anyone comes to you, even an angel, and teaches you a different gospel, what does Paul say? Let him be accursed. I mean, I mean the strongest language, because the gospel is life, and we can't, we can't get the gospel wrong. And so here's Peter. He's misunderstanding, and so Jesus gives him a very strong rebuke. He says, in this moment, you are being a puppet for the devil, because you're blocking me from doing my mission. So get behind me, get out of the way, get in line, fall in line. Man, Peter gets it so wrong. You know who Peter is just like? 
He's just like the blind man in verses 22 to 26. He sees, but he doesn't perceive. And I think that's why Mark put these two stories together. Mark does that a lot, in fact. Like the blind man, Peter sees. The blind man gets his sight restored, and Peter gets spiritual sight. He's like, you're the Christ. I got it. And in both cases, a miracle has taken place. In one case, God has opened the eyes of a blind man. It's a miracle. And in the other, he's come to see, Peter's come to see Jesus as the Messiah. That's a miracle. Interestingly, in Matthew's account of the great confession, Matthew uh, has uh, Jesus also saying to Peter, Peter, blessed are you because flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. So anytime anyone really believes like really believes that Jesus is the Savior and the Son of God, you can, you can say that you've seen a miracle take place because it happens by God's grace and God's power. We just sang it, you know, amazing grace. I once was blind, but now I see. I mean, we, we have this experience as Christians of suddenly seeing that Jesus is the Messiah and the Christ. And yet, Peter is also like the blind man in that he sees, but he doesn't accurately interpret what he's seeing. Just like the blind man was seeing people, but he thought they were like trees walking around, you know, ants or something, walking trees. Like, what what are they? I can't make sense of them. And so Peter also is seeing Jesus, but misinterpreting his mission and misinterpreting what it was that the Messiah was supposed to do. And so Peter is, is a warning to us because it shows us that we can truly believe in Jesus that we can truly be Christians, I think, and yet we can still misunderstand things. We can still misinterpret that there's still more for us to gain clarity about in terms of the Christian life. You know, what, what did Peter think? What, what, did, I mean, what, what is it that Peter thought that the Messiah was supposed to do? Well, we don't know. It doesn't tell us exactly. But, you know, if Peter was anything like the Jews in his day, based on what we know from historical writings, most likely Peter was anticipating a, very much, a much more political Messiah, right? That the Messiah was going to come, and he was going like, to bring the kingdom of God in a political sense, and he was going to throw out the bad people in Jerusalem, and he's going to overthrow the Romans, and he was going to reestablish a, a geopolitical kingdom of God like in the Old Testament, that's what they were expecting. And of course, this would be good news for Peter, right? Because Peter's like his right-hand man. So Peter's like, yeah, this is awesome. He's the Christ, and I'm his prime minister. <laughs> or maybe I'll be the, you know, the minister of something or the vice president of something. Like Peter is like right there with the Christ. He's the right-hand man. And so now, here's Jesus saying, all right, I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to go to Jerusalem. I'm going to get shamed I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to get killed. And Peter is just seeing his political future. You know, going, what, 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 what? You know, it's great to ride the coattails as long as, like, the guy's going to the right place. And so here's Peter. I mean, this whole thing is, is crashing down. And it's also interesting, and you can look this up on your own, but there's two other places later in the Gospel of Mark where Jesus, again, teaches them clearly about his future. And in both of them, they're immediately followed by rebukes to the disciples about pride and arrogance. 
And so there seems to be this pattern where the disciples thought they, they had the winning ticket. And instead, Jesus is like, guys, 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 I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. And I think this is always a challenge for us as Christians, even for those of us who've been Christians for years and decades, is that it's always tempting to replace the narrative of the gospel, the cross, and then the empty grave, and, and to, to replace it with some other narrative that, that suits us better. I mean, we believe it. Like, if you, if you asked us, like, do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe he died and rose again? Oh, yes. That's the gospel. Okay, great. But now let's go the next level down. Is that really how I'm operating? Is the gospel really my kind of functional Monday through Saturday operating system? And then when I get on church on Sunday, and then I sing the gospel songs, and I'm like, yep, that's it, that's good. But then when I'm living, I have a different narrative of my life that I sort of shoehorn Jesus into. For instance, I think one of the ones that I struggle with, probably a lot of us struggle with, is, is a different gospel. It's, it's the narrative of the American dream. You know the American dream? It's uh, if you work hard, do your best, try to make good choices, you'll be happily married, you'll have 2.5 children, uh, you'll own a pickup, you'll have a car, you'll have a dog or two, and you'll live happily ever after. Right? And you know, that, that's the American dream. And it's not a bad dream, it's good to, to be blessed like that. But, but I think sometimes that's really the, the good news that we believe and then we sort of kind of put Jesus into that. And, and then when, when we don't get the American dream, then we're all mad at Jesus. Because we're like, hey, I, you didn't do that. I, I, I'm being a good Christian. You're not doing all the stuff for me that I thought you were going to do. That's not just an American problem. As I, was, as I was telling the church over there in Abu Dhabi, I think it's, it's a, a global problem. There's a, a teaching or a doctrine that, that really is all over the world. It's called the prosperity gospel. Sometimes it's called the health and wealth gospel. And it's basically the idea, maybe you've heard it, it goes like this. Look, God wants to bless you. God's got so much blessing. It's like a dump truck full of blessing for you. And you just got to have enough faith. And if you have enough faith, the blessing will come. And you can get the lack off your back. And you can be healthy and happy and whole. And all this good stuff's going to happen. You just got to have faith. You know, just put your hand on the TV screen and pray the prayer of blessing with me. And if you'll just send $100 to Jeremy Ministries, the blessings will come, my friend, right? Yeah. It'd be funny if it wasn't absolutely true that this teaching is, is like a virus around the world. Does God bless us? Of course he blesses us. We have so many blessings in our lives. But he blesses us sovereignly as he wills. And sometimes he calls us to trials. And when we're in trials, if all your theology is that prosperity kind of teaching, you're, gonna, you're just going to self-destruct. and be like, I don't know what to do with this. I must not have enough faith. I must be a bad Christian. We don't have any biblical way of thinking about the cross and about suffering. So we have these different narratives that we put in place of the real narrative. But Jesus wasn't going to live the American dream. He was going to embrace the Jerusalem nightmare. And so he calls us to follow him. And so that leads us really to verse 34, to the famous teaching. So we have the famous confession that he is the Messiah. 
And then the famous rebuke when Peter misunderstands the mission. And then we have the famous teaching where Jesus is going to further clarify, to help us see how it is that, that the story that we all know from Easter of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, how that story should reformat the way we think about the Christian life. That that, that, that should shape. So Jesus is going to connect the dots between the gospel and your life on Monday through Friday and say, this is what, because of this story, this is what it looks like to live this way. Verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So he gets everyone together, not just the disciples. He's like, everybody, come on, come on, come on, come on. Family meeting, everybody get in here. You've got to hear this. If anyone here is going to follow Jesus, you've got to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow. What does it mean to take up the cross? If we were to go back in time, if we were to have a time machine, and we were to travel back to time when Jesus was writing these things to the Roman Empire, and perhaps we were along a road somewhere in the Roman Empire, and we saw a detachment of Roman soldiers, and in the middle of them, a man who was beaten and bloody and battered, staggering along the road, and if he was carrying on his shoulders a long piece of wood, what would we know about where that man was going? We would know he was going to be crucified. We would know that he was going to die we would know that he was facing his last hours on earth, that there was no health or prosperity in his future, that it was over for him. We would look at that man and say, that is a dead man walking. And so to think that Jesus here in verse 34 says that discipleship is cross-bearing, I mean, you know, I, I've, I, you know those words. I've heard this teaching before. But when you stop and think about, like, wait a minute, what is he saying? It's really shocking. I mean, it's, it's, it's disturbing. To take up your cross is to be willing to die, to suffer and die. That's the path of discipleship. But this is the path of Christ. You know, we're his disciples. He's not our disciple. He doesn't follow our footsteps. We follow his footsteps. So what does that really mean, to take up the cross? I mean, clearly Jesus is speaking in... In, at least at some level, figuratively, he's using imagery here. Uh, you know, it's not like every Christian from that point on literally went around carrying wood on their back. So, so like, what does that mean to take up the cross? And what does that mean for us in the 21st century here in New England to take up our cross? I think it means a lot of things. Um, at the heart of it is this idea of self-denial. Certainly taking up our cross means dying to our sins, to, to being done with sin. And that as God reveals sin in our lives and in our hearts, sinful attitudes, sinful reactions, sinful patterns or behaviors, when God reveals those things, that the Christian response is not to try to manage our sin or to somehow, you know, take it down a few levels. Like the Christian response is, kill it. We need to crucify our sin and put it to death and, and leave no quarter for sin in our lives. And so I think taking up the cross means to, to really go at sin. And when, and when it's revealed in our hearts, to take that as a gift from God and to pray for his power to nail it to the cross, 
so that we would be done with sin, to make a decisive break. I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's the Apostle Paul. I think carrying our cross, speaking of sin, can also mean confessing sin to other people and and being reconciled. You know, if if I'm in a a conflicted relationship with somebody, if there's some tension or I've hurt them or I know that they're hurt or something like that, like I, I think part of carrying the cross is going to that person and asking forgiveness or or seeking to be reconciled with that person. Um, that, that hurts. I, I don't like that. You know, I, I do like it when people apologize to me. I'm always like, oh, thanks. But when I have to apologize to others, oh, something has to die in my heart. Pride has to die. And I have to go, you know, I, I'm sorry. And to be reconciled. Or, well, they should be the ones to take the first step. You know, no, I'm going to take the first step. Pick up the cross. Pick up the cross. I think it it means surrendering our whole lives to the Lord. So, you know, if you're here this morning and you're a junior higher or a high school student or a college student, or maybe you're just out of college and you're still kind of like, I'm not sure what my future is, and it's sort of the world is still wide open to you. And, um, you know, I guess I would say to you that, you know, to lay your future at the feet of the cross and to say, Lord, Take my life. Use my life wherever, wherever you want to use it. You know, and instead of just saying, all right, what's my future? What's the, the way to make the most amount of money in the shortest amount of time? Instead of that being your operating system, to say, God, take my life. Maybe God will send you into some field where you will be wealthy, and, and you'll be using that wealth to, to bless others and to serve the kingdom. But the point is, God, I give you my life. If you're married, to take up your cross means to serve your spouse, to love your spouse, and to put their needs above your needs. If you're single, I think taking up the cross is, is being willing to say, God, you know, maybe, maybe you feel this way and you're single. You feel like, I really wish I had somebody. I wish I had someone special in my life. But Lord, I want to just serve you. Serving you is more important than marriage. And so God, I just want to give you my life. And, and Lord, you take care of the relationship stuff but I want to honor you, and I'm not going to sit around waiting to serve you until I have a spouse. I want to serve you now and give my life to you. That's what it's like to take up the cross. What about corporately? What does it look like in the, because that's kind of individual applications. What about corporately? What, what does it look like to be cross-bearing in terms of how we relate to the church? You know, how, how about our corporate life together? And, and I think part of it is, that we see that living together in a community in the church is about serving one another and about putting others' needs before our own. And, and, and again, I think this is, this is a real challenge to us because sometimes we come at church, again, as Americans, with very much a consumeristic mentality. We walk into church and like, all right, what do, you, what do you got? What do you got? What programs? You know, what, what do you got for me? You know, how, is it, how's this going to help me? Yeah. Maybe not. Maybe, maybe I'll go over to that church and try that one, and we shop around. And Of course, there's a process of trying to find out where God leads you if, if you are looking for a church, but, but we can have that consumeristic mentality. You know, do, do, they, do they have the programs I want? Do they sing the songs that I like? Do they meet at the time that I want them to meet? Do they have the, the preacher that I like? Or whatever it is. And, 
And of course, you know, again, you have to figure that out when you're first getting to a church, but beware of that consumeristic mindset that's, that's looking about, is it convenient for me? You know, I just have to confess, I think one of the false gods that I personally am tempted to worship is convenience and comfort. I think this is an American god, convenience and comfort. It's really humbling to go over to Abu Dhabi and to meet Christians from around the world. Had a guy come up to me on uh, Sunday night after a service and just introduced himself, and he was all excited to be there in the church, and he was from Pakistan. That's a very hard place to be a Christian. And, you know, just the, the excitement of being in a church where he could be free and just, you know, not worrying about, you know, attacks or recriminations and, and just be there. He's just so excited to be there. And, you know, I'm just, and, and I'm just thinking, I can't believe, you know, brother, you have so much to teach me about what it means to be faithful in hard places. Sometimes I wonder secretly about myself and about us as American Christians if, if in fact, we are not the most soft Wimpy and whiny of all Christians in the world. We have much to learn from brothers and sisters who, who serve in tremendous ways and give much of themselves for the gospel. And I think, finally, it has to be said that sometimes what taking up your cross means could literally be to take up your cross. As Christians down through the ages in different times and different contexts have suffered physically for the gospel, have been imprisoned, have been beaten, and in some cases have literally carried a cross. You know, Paul or, or Jesus is speaking to Peter here. And how does church history tell us that Peter died? Crucifixion. That he was apparently crucified under one of Emperor Nero's persecutions and crucified upside down because he did not consider himself worthy to be crucified right side up the way his Lord was. And then maybe you're thinking, so why does anyone want to be a Christian then? <laughs> maybe you're new to the gospel here and you're like, that's not a very good sales pitch. This isn't, this isn't making me want to be a Christian. Or maybe you are a Christian and you're like, uh, I don't know if I like this version of it. You know, why, why would we do this? Well, because it's the way to blessing. Look at verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life, perhaps literally even, right, for me and for the gospel will save it. If you want life, you have to die. And so this is the the incredible inverted paradox of the gospel that we see, that, that life is death and that you gain through losing and that the king conquers through, through defeat on the cross. Everything is upside down and inside out in God's kingdom because God doesn't want the world's ways to win. He, he, we're not thinking like people here. We're thinking the ways of God. And in God's kingdom, and in God's economy, everything is reversed. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me and for the gospel will save it. I'll tell you why we should be willing to take up our cross is because we should be prosperity, health, and wealth Christians in a biblical sense that there is a great blessing to be gained, but it's on the other side of the cross. And so we need to learn that it's the cross, then the empty tomb, and then the crown. It's the cross, then the crown. Those are the dance steps of discipleship. First the cross, 
then the crown. First the cross, and then the crown. Jesus says in verse 36, What good is it for a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? Or what can man give in exchange for his soul? Verse 38, If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his Father's glory with the holy angels. Why would we want to take up our crosses and follow Jesus? Because that's the way to life. It's through death. Because Jesus is risen. We not only believe in a cross, we also believe in the empty tomb. And so we have hope even as we take up our crosses. Can I leave you with just an encouraging thought? Jesus is alive and he still heals blind people. And so if you are here this morning and you're not yet a Christian, can I, can I suggest a prayer for you, a Holy Week prayer? Here's, here's a prayer I want you to pray this week. And you're like, pray? I don't even know if there is a God. Well, don't worry about it. Just try it. <laughs> and if there isn't a God, well, it doesn't matter anyway, right? Nothing really matters, but, you know, it, you know but, but if there is, like, here's your prayer for, for you, Holy Week, if you're a skeptic or, or you're doubting or you're wondering. It goes like this, Jesus, if you are really there, open my eyes. Just cry, cry out to God, Jesus, if you're really there, open my eyes to see you. And for those of us who are Christians who really do believe all these things about Jesus, And yet we look into our hearts and we still see lurking there worldly ways of thinking. We we still see the blindness there. We still see the ways in which we need to pick up our cross and we're like, oh boy, I've come so far but I've got so far to go. And then you think about, you know, how far you still have to go in your Christian life and you're like, I'll never get there. I'll never get there. Here's your prayer for Holy Week. Oh Lord Jesus, touch me. A second time. Touch me again. Heal me more. Let's pray. Oh Lord, we do just pray that that if there is anyone here who has yet to see you, that you would open the eyes of the blind, even now, that they would see the glory of the Son of God. We pray, Lord, that this week, that people who before, who might have just said, you're a teacher or a guru, but this week they would suddenly say, you are the Christ. And God, I pray for those of us who do believe, who do uh, believe you are the Christ. God, would you just show us specific, specific areas of our lives where we need to take up our cross and follow you. And then, Lord, heal us. Give us, give us clarity. Help us to see it and then to walk forward. Lord, we, we need your strength to carry the cross. And so, Lord, would you make us, help us make progress this week. Help us make progress in our discipleship so that because of this Easter, we would look more like you. We pray this all in Jesus' name.